Well, indeed, uh, we give God praise for what he's done for us uh, so generously through Christ. I do want to encourage you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, I don't want to cause you much panic, but we're going to look at chapter 11 and 12 today together. Uh, I know there's a lot in there, uh, and by God's grace, we'll get through it uh, together. Uh, So Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, if you're new to us here at Redeeming Grace, we've been walking our way through this book of the Old Testament um, since the beginning of the year, and next week, Lord willing, we will draw our time to a close in the book of Nehemiah uh, and then return to a series on some of the miracles in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. Uh, And so Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, and one other note of reference, we are going to be taking communion uh, towards the end of the service And so I know Jeremy, about point two of the sermon, is going to start opening his cup this morning. And so if the rest of you need to do that as well, uh, I apologize, they're tricky. Um, Maybe we'll go back to normal. Uh, Jeremy just said a loaf of bread and a bottle would probably suffice moving forward. Uh, But uh, be careful with those. I apologize, they're they're complicated. And so if you need to take time to do it, uh, have at it. Uh, So here we are, Nehemiah chapter 11. Thankful for God's word, thankful that we have the joyful privilege of opening it every week, uh, considering it. Uh, You know, I think about that, and I think this is a blessing God's given us together. Uh, There are so many in the world that don't have a complete Bible. Uh, They don't have opportunities to gather publicly and openly like we do, many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, And so we're just very thankful that we can gather today, open the scriptures, hear God speak in them, through them that our lives could be transformed. And so we wanna give our time and attention to that this morning. I am gonna read pieces of 11 and 12, and then we're gonna come back and we'll see how all this fits together this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 11. I wanna begin reading in verse one, and then I'm going to skip around a bit in these two chapters. This is the word of the Lord. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one excuse me, to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants, uh, etc. And in Jerusalem lived certain sons of Judah and sons of Benjamin. And what you're going to find in the rest of chapter 11 are just the descendants and the sons that that are listed there among the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, uh, the priests, the Levites, you see in verse 15, the gatekeepers in verse 19, and overseer there in verse 22, along with some others. And then I want to pick up and read, and what happens in chapter 12 is you kind of have a a, a genealogy of sorts of, of all of those that are listed there. And now in chapter 12, I want us to pick up in verse 27 because this is all leading up to this moment of dedication. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, verse 27, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with the singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and the villages of uh, the Nedaphathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and um, Asmaveth. I'll practice these words and it just never comes out. 
for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And then I want to pick up in verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests, for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph were the directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Old Testament book that shows us so much about your work of redemption and how you have renewed and not just renewed, but returned and revived a people for your glory. So Lord, as we now consider just the ongoing work that your people engage in there in the city of Jerusalem, as they repopulate the city, as they return to temple worship, as they really resume a life of normalcy as it was intended. Father, would you, would you teach us from it? Would you help us to glean from it all that you would have us see? And that it would be for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What does a revived community look like? You think about revival, you think about renewal. What does that look like? If you think back to the first great awakening... Uh, that took place here in America. It was a revival that swept through the American colonies in the 1730s and 40s. Well-known preachers such as Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield were just some of those who the Lord raised up and used to help bring about a, a great awakening in the nation. And the impacts that stemmed from that awakening were, were many. There were some 350 new churches that were established as a result. Some 50,000 new converts filled these and other established churches. Many of Whitfield's sermons, for example, were widely published in news publications. Colleges such as Dartmouth, Brown, Rutgers, Princeton were all started to help train more ministers of the gospel. Denominations other than the Anglican and Catholic Church were birthed. And many things started really to take place on the landscape of what the church would look like. There was real lasting fruit that impacted many churches and many in the overall society at that time. So one of the things that we can say with certainty, we can say it historically, looking back throughout the course of history, and we can certainly affirm it in the Bible, is that when true revival takes place, it will result in good fruits. Here in Nehemiah, we've seen over the last few chapters, after the walls have been complete now, and as the people have assembled multiple times and heard the law of God read, and, and, and as their lives are brought back to kind of a, a place of renewal and revival, we've seen them experience this 
this newfound expression of worship and dependence upon the Lord. And here in chapters 11 and 12, we see further fruit, we could say, of this revival as the community of God's people repopulate Jerusalem. And there's a reason they're repopulating Jerusalem. It's to bring about a restoration of temple worship, not worshiping the temple, but worshiping within the temple, the true and living God. As a, center part, as a central part of, of their identity and purpose as the covenant people of God. And so the whole point of, Jerusalem, of the Israelites coming back from exile to repopulate the city of Jerusalem was really a point about them existing as God's covenant people in relationship to him. And so as we take a, a look back uh, here in these chapters and consider all that's going on around them, to what this early community of God's people enjoyed, we're going to find several encouragements and, and I think points of instruction that should inform who we ought to be as God's people, even today so far removed from their experiences and their reality then. In fact, I want us to, to walk through this passage and I want us to see four, four things that marked the community of God's people that I believe that ought to be things that any community, any church, any, any gathering of, of God's people ought to reflect in their corporate and individual lives as well. I want us to see these characteristics, especially as it's applied to the people of God. And when we think about the people of God, we're thinking about the community of God's people. So I want us to see these characteristics too. These broad, they've got some subpoints underneath. Uh, of some of these as well. And so I just want us to think through these together. First of all, we see this, that as you look at the, the snapshot, this, this portrait of God's people here back in Jerusalem, you see that they are a committed community. They're committed, they're committed, they're renewed, they're, they're, they're back in, they're, they're, they're all in for what the Lord has called them to be and do. If you remember back to chapter seven, and I'm sure many of you do, I'm sure you have this memorized, right? But if you go back to chapter seven, right after the walls were finished, and just before the revival started to take, take place within Jerusalem, Nehemiah comments in chapter seven, verse four. Look at, if you just flip back a page or two, notice what this little comment is. It says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So here we have Jerusalem, the temple had been rebuilt, the walls around the city had been restored, and very few people were living in the city. It was kind of vacant. I mean, some of the leaders were living there, the priests, the people who were responsible for the temple, certainly they were there. But by and large, the, 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 there wasn't a critical mass of people populating this city. And so they do what was common back then, they cast lots, they instituted kind of a draft or a lottery, if you will, to see who would go back and re help repopulate the city. And that's what we find here in the text in, in, in verse one of chapter 11. It says, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in other towns. One out of 10 moved back to Jerusalem. Now I think, it would be easy to just kind of skip past that and say, okay, well, they're just repopulating. But there's, there's some things I think we need to see here as to, 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 to how this characterizes the people of that day. Uh, it impacted the, them 
because as the people are not only being, re, not only are they repopulating the city and being renewed as God's people, revived, you're seeing that, that there is intentional, deliberate effort being established here to kind of set the trajectory moving forward. And I want you to notice several things about their commitment. First of all, we see that they had a sacrificial spirit, a sacrificial spirit. Listen, moving to Jerusalem was not something that many of the people were, li- were lining up for. I mean, that's just evident in the text. The walls have been rebuilt, cities reestablished, and there's just, most of the people are still living out in the country in the smaller towns and villages. There's not a strong desire to go back into the city of Jerusalem. Um, it was not really seen as this glamorous opportunity. It's a lot safer out in the community, out in the countryside, in the villages, just kind of low key. I mean, Jerusalem had been destroyed. <laughs> it's kind of a target. If you're going to, to do something bad to, to this region, you're gonna go for the big, big cities. And sadly, we see that that's often taking place in conflicts today. And that's exactly what, what, what was the reality of this day. It was a dangerous place to live. But for God's city to function as God had ordained it to be, it needed people. It needed people to be there. And so we see that that's exactly what took place. And while some were required to move due to the casting of lots, we know that according to verse two, that others volunteered willingly to go. You see that in verse two. The people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Again, if you were a Jew living in the surrounding towns and villages, it would have been a big deal to move back to the city of Jerusalem. It meant a big change. New environment, new relationships, new neighbors, a new way of life. And what if you ended up living near the dung gate, right? I mean, there's just all kinds of, of changes that would have, would have taken place for someone to move from a small community, farming community most likely, out in the outskirts to now very much a city environment. But this repopulation effort needed to happen, and it did happen. And it's clear that many of them willingly made this sacrifice to make it happen, therefore demonstrating that God's purposes took precedent over their own preferences and desires and comforts. They were willing to set aside what was comfortable to them in order to give themselves over to what God was calling them to do for his glory and purposes in Jerusalem. And we see many people doing that in many ways today, don't we? Just last week, we were blessed to hear from a young family that shared with us through testimony here that they're preparing to head to Central Africa next month to serve in an unreached part of the world. They're literally uprooting their lives here in what they would, what we could say a comfortable suburbia to give themselves for the advance of the gospel among a people group where the gospel is is not known, it's not even heard. No Christians. You you heard them share how in the trajectory of what they're thinking, it's gonna be a 20 plus year kind of thing. And that's a lot of sacrifice that's involved. They're willing to uproot their lives, what's comfortable, what they know, to go serve in a place they don't know, to learn a culture that's different than theirs, to learn a language that's different than theirs, to invest their lives for the sake of the gospel, the making of disciples and the planting of churches. And this is often what the Lord does. He calls us to leave comfortable places, comfortable ministries to go and serve in ways he's calling us to do. 
Maybe one day that you'll see God's call on your own life to maybe uproot from here and go and serve in a strategic part of this nation or the world. But there are even ways right here. You don't have to think those are like the big kind of, I don't wanna say extreme, but I guess extreme examples. Like those are the big examples, right? And people uprooting and going to, a, to another culture and living their lives for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and that's, what's, that's what people do. It's what the Lord calls some to do. But for many of us, many of us are going to be staying right here. We're gonna be serving the Lord where we are. But the point behind that is that even here, you don't have to uproot your life. Now listen, if God's calling you to, you better. <laughs> you better uproot your life and go serve him if that's what the Lord's calling to you. But it doesn't mean that in order to be faithful to God, I have to uproot and go to another culture for 20 years. For many of you, it's going to mean right here where God has you sacrificing to advance God's purposes in ways that may not seem so glamorous and desirable. That's my point. There are ways right here you can do that. You think about the, the, the sacrifice the people that were going into Jerusalem were making. That's what they were doing. Jerusalem was not seen kind of as this, this great opportunity. <laughs> Most of the people were saying, Glad it's rebuilt, we'll come worship, but we're gonna live out here. It wasn't seen as a glamorous kind of thing, a desirable thing to go actually live there. Um, so they were willing to sacrifice their own preferences and comforts to go do something God's called them to do. And that's exactly the point. It's not so much the what, the point is where is your heart? Are you willing to sacrifice what is comfortable for you and what you know in order to serve a purpose that's greater than you. Maybe relocating to Jerusalem for some of you means to go and live and serve in a, another place in another community in another culture to make the gospel known. But it could easily just as much mean of sacrificing in ways right where you are. It may mean something super simple. <laughs> so again, the point is, I'm willing to, to give up what is comfortable to me in order to serve a greater purpose than me, ultimately the Lord's purposes. That may mean something as simple as actually being one of those two nursery workers we still need to go help serve the nursery. Not always glamorous, diapers are not glamorous, right? Not desirable. But we give ourselves to things like that, helping people in practical ways, helping people move. I know that happens a lot here. And so helping people move and relocate uh, from a different residence, serving on the setup team, not glamorous, not necessarily desirable to get up at seven o'clock in the morning and come here, but I'm thankful we have a faithful crew that does that. Benefit from that every week. So my point is this, is, is that that are we in a place where we have a sacrificial spirit, understanding that God's purposes, no matter what he calls us to do, big or small, major or simple, that we're willing to give up our own comforts and our own desires and our own preferences in order to serve his greater purposes for his glory, no matter what it may cost us. Point, again, is not so much the what, but the heart of willingness and sacrifice behind it. And brothers and sisters, we are, we are no more like, we are, we are just like Jesus. 
whenever we give ourselves to that kind of sacrificial spirit. Because you think about Philippians 2, and I know we, we probably reference this verse a lot, but I can't help but think about this is exactly what we find in the person of Jesus. Where he says, in, Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I guarantee you, if you are the holy God of the universe, that it is not a glamorous or desirable thing to humble yourself and come and dwell with sinners. And not only that, to die for them. So friends, we are following the way of Christ whenever we give ourselves up for the sake of his purposes, by humbling ourselves and giving ourselves to these things. You see that they had a, a sacrificial spirit, but you also see number two, that they have a, uh, had a cooperative spirit. Verse two, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. I think this demonstrates the cooperation that they were having. So you have all these people now that are moving into the city and the people who were there blessing them, affirming them, giving God thanks for them. It shows that they had this cooperative spirit. They had a common goal to repopulate the city as the center of worship for the covenant community. Because I think this is a good, a good text to kind of help us understand the benefit of, of having those self-check kind of questions we should often ask ourselves. And this is a, one of them. A question I think that is good for us to consider for our own heart is this, am I someone who is eager to cooperate selflessly with others in order to advance the kingdom of God in the world where I live and throughout the world? Am I eager to affirm those who God raises up and puts alongside of me to serve his purposes in the world? Do you generally have that kind of spirit? Do you, do you generally have a cooperative, affirming, in a good way, a godly way kind of spirit, or is it more of a critical spirit? You only see what's broken and what's wrong and how things need to change. Half the glass half empty kind of person. You see here that there's this cooperation, there's this blessing. Hey, they're willing to come here. We're gonna bless them, we're gonna affirm them, we're gonna give God for them. There was a cooperative spirit. But if you keep reading the text, you also see as they committed themselves, there was a courageous spirit that existed among many of them. If you were to look through the text, in verses four through six, you have a list of many of the sons of Judah. So one of the tribes of of Israel, you, you have the sons of Judah, verses four through six, and sons of Benjamin in verses seven through nine. After that, in verses 10 through 14, you have the priest. After that, you have the Levites in verses 15 through 18, and then others that are still listed after that. But notice how within each of these groups, some of the people are described. Look at verse six. It says, all of the sons of Perez, which is also related to Judah, who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Look at verse eight. This is speaking of some of the sons of Benjamin and it says, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. 
If you jump down to verse 14, you see it again under the priest. It says, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. It's just a little, little, little snapshot here of some of the people. But what you find is that among many of these different groups of people, you had those who were described as people of valor, courageous, bold, confident people. Listen, Jerusalem was a dangerous place to live. There was a reason it needed walls. <laughs> and it needed protection. And for you to put yourself within that, that wall meant that you could be an object of attack. But by their willingness to relocate, they show valor, they show courage, they show a willingness to do whatever it took, to take whatever risk was needed to serve God's purposes. I think that that is something that should speak to each and every one of us as well as we think through these examples of commitment. You think about the sacrifice that, that they, 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 they demonstrated. You think about the cooperative spirit that you find. You think about the courageous spirit that's present here. And for us to be present and faithful and effective in much of what God calls us to do, that's exactly what we have to have. We have to have these kinds of, of commitments to the Lord that we're willing to do whatever it takes to, to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice to serve the name of the Lord. Gospel ministry often requires these kinds of things to be faithful and committed. They were a committed community. But number two, they were a worshipful community. If you were to look at verses seven, and really all the way down to chapter 12, verse 26, a lot of these verses are names. You're gonna see the reason behind what they're doing. We've said it before. We have to keep in mind the main reason for Jerusalem's rebuilding project and their repopulation of the city was so that God could be rightly worshiped. That was the goal, for God's people to be in God's place that they might be his covenant community for his glory. And indeed, everything is centered around this. Everything was centered around the temple, around God's worship, under this old covenant scheme. So the lengthy list of names here in chapter 11 of the groups of different people, the two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and so forth. Uh, list some of the villages of, of the outside communities, just so you're aware of maybe this is where some of the people move from back to the city. There's all of these, the point is there's all of these people that are making this, this happen. So this lengthy list of names here in chapter 11 is important because it shows us the priority of the larger community, this effort to repopulate Jerusalem and restore the worship that is central in the temple was not just an effort of a few. It was going to be an effort of the whole and it would impact the whole. I like what Jim Hamilton said in some of his comments on this passage. He's referring to the list of people. He said, these lists of people emphasize the legitimacy of these who return to the land. Their legitimacy is established by their genealogical continuity with those God redeemed all the way back in Egypt. These are true Israelites and the continuity and legitimacy are for the people of God and the purity of the people of God is for the worship of God. And then he concludes this, he said, so these lists ultimately are about right worship. These people needed to be the right people pursuing the right thing in the covenant God had established with them so that God could be rightly worshiped. 
Friends, when you look throughout this text, we're going to see it even in their celebration in just a few moments, the centrality of, of worship. That's exactly what we find even in our lives today. The reason God created you and the reason God created me and the reason God called us to himself and gave us redemption was so, so that ultimately we could worship him. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. That's why we exist. We exist for God's glory so that he might receive worship from us and through us. And while our lives are different under the new covenant than it, than it was under the old covenant, I mean, very differences that you find, right? We're not building a temple up there. We're building a great building, but it, it's not a temple where sacrifice is going to take place. If that happens, you should leave, right? <laughs> That's not what that is. Our lives are not centered around a temple where we offer sacrifices. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is that while we are no longer people who are centered around temple worship and sacrifice, the new covenant says we are all temples called to be living sacrifices to the Lord. Our lives are to be marked as a people who live for the glory and honor of God in all that we do, as living sacrifices day by day out in the community, as the temples of the living God, as the presence of God dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. And as we go about our daily lives, giving honor and praise to him, but even in our corporate gatherings, while very different from what you saw of, the, of Nehemiah's day still being practiced, I think there's still some continuity with, with the overall scope of what's going on here. Think about the pattern you see demonstrated even within Israel. And you think about as the people would assemble, they would hear God's word read and explained. They were reminded of God's faithfulness, of their own rebellion. They would repent and recommit themselves to the covenant. There would be singing, our gatherings, while very different in what we do, it's not centered on a sacrificial system. Our gatherings still very much have a similar purpose, doesn't it? We gather to reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, to remember God's promises, to remember God's grace, to rejoice in what God has done. As we declare that through song, as we remind ourselves through opening the word and hearing it, Worship is about us declaring God's praise for who he is and all he's done. And so even as we gather, while it may look very different, the, the point is the same. We're reflecting upon the greatness and glory of God so their hearts would be drawn to him. They were a worshipful community. Number three, they were a joyful community. If you were to jump all the way to verse 27... Verses 1 through 26 of chapter 12 seems to be a, a genealogy of sorts, kind of going back over who the priests and Levites are and, and kind of tracing them back. Uh, it's almost treated as kind of an aside, kind of side comments. So you're reading through and you see the, the Levites and priests referenced there. And in chapter 12, 1 through 26, it's kind of a genealogical record of kind of tracing their lineage back. And now in verse 27, we have the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. It's been rebuilt, now they're gonna dedicate it. But what you find here is that as they, as they are being, being restored to being a worshipful community, that they're, they're marked by joy. 
They're a joyful community. We actually get to see their worship on display here as they dedicate the walls in verses 27 and following. I want you to look again at verses 27 through 30 with me. It says, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the uh, Netophathites and also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. They come together and they enjoy this great celebration with thanksgiving, with all kinds of musical instruments. It's a celebration. Like this is not some lame little, little thing. This is a great celebration that they're enjoying. In fact, in verses 31 through 42, you see that they even bring about two choirs that kind of walk along the walls and kind of sing to each other as part of this celebration. That's what you find in verses 31 through 42, just kind of a description of these choirs doing that and joining in in the celebration. It's very descriptive. But then you have a summary of it all in verse 43. And verse 43 is really the text I want us to focus on here. After describing this celebration and the, the elements of it, verse 43, we read, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I want you to notice two things about their joy. Number one, the reason for their joy. The text in verse 43 says, for God made them rejoice. We see that God was the source of their joy. The reason they rejoiced was because God made them. He enabled them. He brought it about within their hearts. This is important because while things were kind of returning to to some level of normal in Jerusalem, things were not perfect. Threats still loomed, and yet the people found reason to rejoice. They found reason to rejoice. You may think about joy, and you might find that even in your own personal life at times, you might find that joy is often elusive. It's difficult, difficult to enjoy, and there are many reasons that exist today, that exist that, that might dampen your joy. Personal circumstances, health, job-related things, you name it, gas prices, on and on we can go. But despite all the hardships, despite all the challenges we face in the world, we, of all people in the world, have reason to celebrate and to have joy. We, and, and the reason is that is because our joy is rooted in, it's centered in God. He is the true source of our joy. And friends, he is the only one who can sustain it. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. 
Brothers and sisters, one of the things that we need to remember, and, and we see it right here in verse 43, for God made them rejoice, is that if you are going to have true and lasting joy, it will never be found in circumstances. If you're trying to manufacture joy by just getting into the right place or finding the right person or doing the right job or having the right level of 401k in your bank account or whatever the case may be, you will never find true lasting joy because God and God alone is the source of true joy because of who he is and all that he's done for us. God is the reason for our joy, not circumstances. So when you find yourself, when you find joy being elusive and you find yourself struggling to have it, where is your hope rooted? Guarantee you in some way it's being centered upon circumstances or something you're trying to manufacture and to create within your own heart. But when you find that God in all of his sufficiency is the source of joy, you will understand that in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He's the reason for joy. He's the reason. But I want you all to see the witness of joy. Look at verse 43 again. For God made them rejoice with great joy, everybody, the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. When we find true joy in the Lord, when our joy is anchored and it's centered in the Lord, it echoes and attracts notice. True joy cannot be contained, nor can it be hidden. And what you find here, in a way, is a joy that is evangelistic. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Brothers and sisters, when you think about our joy, there is a witness that we bear when we enjoy joy, when we rejoice in the Lord. And oftentimes it can be the means that the Lord will use to draw unbelievers even towards hearing the gospel. Our joy is not the gospel, but it can often be a means by which God will, 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 will make known the truth to others. I think it's just a fair question to ask ourselves even this morning, does our joy in the Lord echo? And I'm not meaning like literally audibly, I mean, does your joy radiate from you? Does it, is it evident to people who know you and are around you that your joy, that your source of hope and comfort and joy in life is not rooted in your circumstances, but it's rooted and anchored in Christ? Is it evident to others around you that you are a joyful person? And did you think about our church in this community? We can be known for lots of things, but are we known as a joyful people? I have to work on this because my face doesn't naturally put happiness out, right? Some of us are wired that way. We just, that's the way we are, right? We just, we're happy, we're joyful, but we, sometimes we don't look like it. So you can't just assume by looking at someone whether or not they have joy. Sometimes you can. In my case, you can't, right? But are we known for that? Is it, does it come out of our mouth? Does it, does it come out of our experiences in life? Are we demonstrating that our hope and our joy is in the Lord? Does it, is our joy being heard far away? 
See, they were a joyful community, rejoicing in the Lord. And then lastly, and we see that they were an orderly community. In verses 44 through 47, you see that they, what, what's going on here? Let me just read it. It says, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the services of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions to the singers, the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. What you have take place kind of between verse 43 and verses 44 and 44 through the end of the chapter is kind of a move from this experience of revival, this celebration, this, this radiation of joy, kind of back to a structured, more mundane, normal practice of worship. Celebrations end, enthusiasm subsides, and things start to get established to go back to a more normal routine. They had enjoyed a mountaintop experience with the dedication of the wall, but now they needed to prepare for ongoing worship and ministry, especially that which would be central to their identity and purpose around the temple. We see that in these verses, how Israel is organizing themselves. Nehemiah is helping them organize themselves for ongoing worship for ongoing ministry that's gonna be beyond these great celebrations. Men were appointed to oversee storerooms. Supplies were needed for temple activity. Tithes were needed to be brought in and counted, right? All of these things were being put into place. They had studied the scriptures as verse 44 says. They had studied the Bible to make sure everything that God had required of them was being put into order and place so that their worship could continue on moving forward. In fact, it was a very detailed system of what they would, would be part of. It required a lot of planning, a lot of administrative efforts. I know our worship looks very different today in that it does not involve storehouses and animal sacrifices and gatekeepers and, and whatnot, but the essentials, I think, are still present. The, the point of all of this is that for God's people to maintain a faithful ministry, a ministry that is demonstrative of true worship and faithfulness in serving, that it requires good administration. It requires God's people being orderly and mindful of what the Bible instructs us to do and putting systems and things in place to make sure that we are moving forward with a focus. Friends, most of your life will not be lived on these celebrative mountaintop experiences. Most of our lives, it's kind of like when we go to a conference and it's like amazing and you come back to church the next week and you're like, this is kind of lame. You ever done that? Have you ever gone off to some retreat or conference and you're like, whoa. And you come back and your next day you're like, it's just, okay, it's gonna how it's gonna be. 
Preaching's a little, uh, you could do better. Uh, what you don't realize is they spend weeks and months preparing for that one message you hear. The people doing the music, you know, all the rest. But my point is that most of our lives are not lived up there in those, those grand moments. Most of our lives are lived in the mundane, normal, kids on your laps, right? Things going on. But we need to have right order, biblically informed order in place so that we, as we walk forward as God's people in worship or in ministry, that we are kept with a laser focus on what God has called us to be and do. And that's what you see here. God's people were being organized. Organization and administration is a good and godly thing. You can, idol, you can, you can make it an idol, but it's a good thing. God's people, as God's people, we need to value the importance of good structure and that God has given us an organization to help keep us on track as God's people. And that's exactly what we find here at the end of chapter 12. They were an orderly community. True revival does produce good fruit. It impacts us individually and it impacts us as a community of God's people. The people of God in Nehemiah's day had returned and they had been renewed. And it was all for the purpose of living as God's people to God's glory. We know that things today are different under the new covenant. Our lives are not structured around a city or a temple. There's no sacrifices to be offered because Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice to be sacrificed on a cross to shed his blood for our sins that we might be forgiven. And while we're not called to repopulate a city as God's people redeemed by God's grace through the sacrifice Jesus gave, we're not repopulating cities, but we do, brothers and sisters, await for a heavenly city to come. Revelation 21, verse 2, we hear about that city. And John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the city that this earthly city, Jerusalem, pointed to. And that's the city we're all going to if we've trusted in Christ, that we will be with God as his people and we will know him forever. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning in all that you have given us. We rejoice in your favor and your faithfulness to your promises. God, we look at these examples in the Old Testament, we see how you've worked in the past, and that only gives us confidence. It gives us comfort in the present, and it gives, gives us confidence in the future. And Father, we're grateful. Lord, as we continue to to see how you worked amongst this people and even under the old covenant. Lord, I pray that we would be shaped and informed by your word today. That Lord, that we would be a people known as a committed people, sacrificial, courageous. 
Lord, that we would be a people marked by our worship and our joy. And Lord, that we wouldn't shy away from, from having right order and organization, God, that, that it's all about you. That we would understand that we are a people to be lived out in this world to honor you in every way and that we would be diligent to give ourselves to it. So Lord, we just thank you for, for showing us that this morning, even from these very, um, very detailed verses from these two chapters. Lord, would you help us to be your people in this world for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name.